And now it's time for East Cast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, 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 now. And welcome to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM. At Eastcast, we come together once a month to delve into the arts, the culture and the people of East London, but about issues that are relevant much further afield. My name's Nia Charpentier and I'm here with Pearl Wise, Anna Xavier and our latest Eastcaster, Danielle Manning. So uh, welcome to Danielle. You may remember last month, Danielle came in to talk to us about Podium.me, which is a podcasting platform where journalists under the age of 25 get to air their views. So Danielle, is back with us and we'll be sharing some of her work later on, won't you, Daniel? Yeah, hi, hi, it's great to be here. Um, the piece which you'll hear later is about a community facing eviction because of the Magna Carta, so we'll hear more about that later. Sounds really interesting, but also uh, on today's show we have singer-songwriter Armin De Field in the studio with us for an interview about his um, new EP, uh, now, uh, and now over to Armin in the field, and he will also be performing a live track for Rem, uh, from that same EP, which we are really looking forward to that hello and we also have three intergenerational conversations that i recorded um with hackney residents as part of a project called remembering 65 and that was 1965 the date when hackney merged integrating shoreditch hoxton and stoke newington I'm a veteran in comparison to Dan. Um, he's much, much more recent. I ran a club in Dalston back in the days, um, which is called the Four Aces Club in Dalston Lane. My name is Newton Dunbar. Uh, my name's Dan Beaumont, and I opened Dalston Superstore six years ago, and I also run a couple of other places, a club called Dance Tunnel and a pizza spot called Voodoo Rays. Um, and I was, I was just thinking that six years is a long time in Clubland until I was reminded that you yes. were running your place for something like 35. 30 years. Yeah, 35, over 30 years. You're at a great advantage because Hackney is now Clubland. There's so many clubs in Hackney and people have come quite regularly from the West End to Hackney. I think we were, we were really lucky in, in that we, we picked a good spot and everything sort of happened around us, really. I wonder how easy it is now, because I think, although Hackney is now known for its late-night economy mm-hmm. and for the bars and clubs, there's still a difficult relationship very, sometimes. Very, and the difficulty comes not over the spot that you've chosen physically but by its surrounding aspects 
regarding to disturbances to neighbors, etc., that could be really, really a big nightmare. I think there's this myth. There's this myth that people who run bars and clubs uh, are rolling in money yes. and drive around <coughs> in Jaguars. Yeah, well, um, it so much used to be like that in <laughs> my days because, as I say, the power is now shared by many people yeah. in this dispensation. During my time, it was quite a lonely, in one aspect, um, occupation in the sense that there weren't many other clubs. We had a kindly fate then because certain things were happening in clubland that I was party to. With the advent of reggae and the introduction of bands from abroad, America and Jamaica and Germany, we had a great advantage. The incentive in most cases is either love or money, and I would choose the second one, it was money. <laughs> Um, the possibility of earning a lot of money was there. And number two, it was love of what I did. Because um, when a club is running properly and you get the feedback from it, it's quite a very good personal atmosphere that is fed back to you. I can, re I can relate to that. So, you know... But it won't put money in the bank, that aspect of things. It so sometimes, I mean, I, sometimes there are nights when I look around the club and, mm -hmm. and when everything goes really well and there's an incredible atmosphere, yes. there's an amazing DJ you've Feedback. wanted to book mm. for a really long time. And yes. there's always a question in my mind, which is what, what are all these people actually doing here? Yes. Um, but it's, it always, yeah, it's an amazing feeling when it's all happening around you. You know the band that we on the map um, the prodigy prodigy yeah yes. <laughs> like nightclubs are a sort of they're like a cultural incubator um, if you look at the kind of one of our biggest mm. cultural exports it's music um, and if you look at the effect that our artists DJs producers have on the, you know they, they, they all come they all graduate through our club scene mm. and it's a really it's a really really vital asset for us as a city, but also for this country as a, as a cultural export. And I think it's a, it's a shame not to recognise that, because I think if we, start, if we start saying there can be no more nightclubs, you know, we, we're, we're cutting off a lot, of, a lot of potential talent and also a lot of potential economic growth. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you what you think about this idea of being part of the historical fabric during a lot of the time when you were operating, mm. you were maybe seen as a, a, not an outlaw, but certainly... A pioneer. There you go. Is what I think. Yes, but you see, a lot of things are created, and it just depends on whether they're true and whether they're false. So as a venue, mm -hmm. it's, it's always a challenge to maintain relevance, because yeah. I think the more you try and chase what people think is fashionable or then, then you start losing sight of the main of course, reasons why you're doing yeah. it. Temptation-wise, it's, it's quite out there. You will get many temptations and these temptations may lead you off onto the beaten track. So, you know, just keep going as you are.
and things would work out in the long run because truth always bubbles up and here I am to prove that yeah. <laughs> um, that sound, no that sounds like good advice it's not going to be difficult for you to do because you're already on that path but what I'm saying is stick to that path yeah. because you'll be tempted daily and people mm -hmm. will know you as a club owner and they will they will pull towards you in a positive way because everybody likes to be friends with the governor <laughs> <laughs> so you know keep going the way you are and I will come and visit you soon yeah I will <laughs> <laughs> Remembering 65 conversations um, between two Dalston club owners, past and present Newton Dunbar's club, the Four Aces, opened in the 60s and ran for 35 years, pioneering everything from early reggae, punk, right through to Acid House, and then younger club and promoter and DJ um, Dun Beaumont um, currently runs the ever-popular dance spot Dalston Superstore. And, of course, if you like what you hear, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and on Facebook. We are um, East Coast Show. Or check out all our interviews, listings and, you know, music adventure online at eastcoastshow.com. Thanks, Anna. So now we are joined in the studio by Kate Altman, who is from ArcSoc. And I hope <laughs> we are joined by artist Alex Schrader, um, who's on the line um, from the States. Alex, are you there? <laughs> but we definitely have Kate in the studio, don't we? <laughs> Welcome, Kate. Kate is from the University of Cambridge um, Architecture Society, uh, and they're both here to talk about a new exhibition where architecture meets performance art, which is um, going to be revealed at the Truman Brewery in Brick Lane in East London very soon. So as we're having slight problems getting to Alex, we'll come to you first, Kate. So um, tell me about this, this exhibition that's, that's coming up. So this year, ArcSoc, uh, um, we're representing the um, University of Cambridge Architecture Department. Um, and each year we put on a summer show. Um, and this year we're at the Old Truman Brewery, which is really exciting for us. We haven't worked with this venue before. Um, so something special that's happening this year is we're um, working with Alex Schrader. Um, so we started the year by designing a piece with him. Um, which is really great. We involved um, lots of students from across the Department of Architecture. Um, and after kind of a series of four or five weeks with lots of workshops, um, we created this um, kind of performance architecture piece. And so what is performance architecture? Is this a new thing? Um, so it's something that Alex has been kind of testing in his work for um, several years now. Um, and it's something that I think all the students have been really interested in because um, it's kind of a platform in which we can test our ideas about architecture. Um, so this piece that we've created has really been kind of like a great um, kind of setting for testing our ideas about architecture um, and learning about construction. Okay. And um, Alex's piece, I mean, he is, uh, was quite famous for creating um, this giant hamster wheel mm. um, in, in a gallery in, in Brooklyn, in New York. Um, I mean, and that was vast, wasn't it? Is, is yeah. this next piece going to be on, on the same scale? 
Um, so it's still a big piece, possibly not as ambitious in terms of the scope of the movement. Um, uh, we have to kind of comply to a different health and safety requirement. <laughs> um, but it's a moving piece. Um, so, yeah, it will have kind of a movement element in it as well. OK. And Alex, are you there on the line? Oh, thanks so much for joining us <laughs> all the way from from the States, all the way from New York. Um, so Kate was just telling us a little bit about uh, your piece of work and it's called Push Me, Pull Me. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about what's what's behind that title? Sure. Well, you know, the title really came out of a collaboration um, uh, between all of us and uh, we brainstormed a number of ideas and when we set out to do the work, it, you know, we were kind of wanting to visualize a relationship. Um, and through our discussions, um, we didn't want it to necessarily be a relationship that's completely compliant or cooperative, um, but there might be a little bit of tension. And so uh, for this piece, we decided that it would be a kind of struggle between office and, uh, and home, you know, kind of working experience of many uh, architecture students around the world. So um, the house is basically two rooms okay. that cannot exist at the same time. One room is for sleeping and the other room is for working. So when a critical mass of people on one side of the piece um, decides that they want that function, you pull on a rope like a tug of war. Um, whoever has more um, Whoever has more manpower on their side uh, determines which room will exist. Okay. And are you yourself going to be involved in the in the installation, or is it something the, um, the, the people that come to the gallery can get involved with? Uh, well, uh, I will be uh, kind of overseeing the installation from afar, from New York, um, and uh, really the team there in Cambridge is going to spearhead the whole effort. Okay. And then um, before you came on the line, we talked a little bit about your, your previous piece, In Orbit, um, where you were you lived inside a, a, a giant hamster wheel in Brooklyn for six days. Can you tell how was that? Oh, sure, sure. Well, the piece was actually up for 10 days, and the piece okay. was called In Orbit. And um, basically, I collaborated with another uh, artist, Ward Shelley for the last, I'd say, about eight years, and uh, we've done a number of work together. And um, the, what, what we try and do with each piece is construct a relationship. Our sort of urge is to kind of build upon the Winston Churchill quote, which was that we construct our buildings thereafter they construct us. So buildings actually produce relationships, and we uh, make kind of extreme spaces um, that produce a, a kind of hyper-visualized relationship. And in this case, it was about cooperation. Ward was living on the top of this wheel, and I was living um, on the inside of the wheel. And it's basically a two-bedroom apartment with the furniture um, sort of attached to the inside and outside. So when we walk, a room would come to us, and it would be a desk or a bed or a comfortable chair or the kitchen or bathroom. And so we would just kind of like go through our normal day doing what we do, 
uh, we would talk to people and so forth. Um, but when we wanted to change function, we would have to walk that function around. And what was the reaction like? And what 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 kind of a reaction are you expecting in London? Well, you know, I think um, everyone who comes to the work will will sort of make their own meaning out of it. We don't necessarily prescribe a meaning um, that a, an audience needs to have from our work. You know, with the just since we were just talking about in orbit, um, a lot of people were thinking, "Oh, is this about a rat race?" Um, and you know, that's one reading of it. That's not the one that we had per se. Um, but you know, sure, anyone can bring anything to it, and I'm sure that visitors to the London work will come up with their own meanings beyond what we as a group um, wanted to put forth, which I think is also quite valid and thinks will work in the future. We're really excited about your work coming coming to London. And Kate, can I just um, come to you? Uh, so this is all part of a, a free-range um, exhibition, isn't it? Can you, for those who don't know, can you just talk a little bit about what that entails? Yeah, um, so um, this year we're kind of, our exhibition is set in the backdrop of um, free range shows, which are kind of a series of um, kind of art and design shows put on um, at the Ultram Brewery. So it's kind of an exciting opportunity to exhibit all our work um, kind of alongside like a wider range of art and design um, made by kind of a whole host of graduates. And when, and when is all this happening? So um, the opening night for the ArcSoc exhibition is the 7th of July and runs till the 9th. Um, and then Free Range is um, kind of going on at the moment until the 14th of July. Okay. Well, thank you, Kate, in the studio, and thank you, Alex, all the way in New York, for joining us um, on the East Coast show. And um, all those details about Alex's uh, work will be on our website, eastcoastshow.com. Um, so thank you so much for that. That was um, we're looking forward to that. Um, so next, um, let's go to the second of our uh, trio of conversations um, from the Remembering sixty five series. Um, so Gillian was a teenager in nineteen sixty five, and she talks to two local Hackney six formers, Dina and Amina, about um, her experiences of growing up in a working-class family during the 1960s and how it differed to their current life experiences as teenage girls navigating the world today. Hi, my name is Amina Omar. I'm 15. I go to Captain Girls Academy. I was born in Finland in the city Helsinki. And then after four years, I moved to Hackney. Hello, my name's Dina. I attend the Erswick School Sixth Form. I'm 17 years old and I was born and raised in Hackney. Hello, I'm Gillian Lawrence. Um, I'm a senior uh, in the community of Hackney and Walden Forest. I was born in London and have lived here all my life, but also lived overseas. I was worried about today coming here that maybe I'd meet some quiet teenagers and I wondered how everything would go, but in fact, you're very vocal teenagers. And going back to the 60s, there was still that residue of having been brought up where you were a child and you kept your mouth shut. And when adults were talking, you certainly didn't try and get into the conversation. Because of that way of living, then many people of my age had to grow into our voices. There's no way that I could have sat down and talked to you when I was a teenager. I'd been trained to not to talk. 
my mum taught me it's disrespectful for someone to come to your house and you're upstairs in your room. Really? You can stop and come downstairs, say hello and tell the person that you're upstairs and you're not going to be in the living room. That is amazingly different. What a different... Do you think that's across all the cultures we have in London? No, because oh, okay, there's some people I go to their house and um, I'm go for example, my cousin, sometimes you'll go to his house and he's stuck in the bedroom and I'm left with the mum yeah. in the living room and I was expecting him to come outside but it's just different rules. Yeah. Some parents set rules for their kids yeah. and some parents don't set rules for their kids. So like in my household, when like we get like our cousins or like my friends over, we all just come downstairs into one room and we start talking, we eat together, we sort of socialise with each other because like, and there's no such a thing like restricted, like everyone has a like free voice, we say what we want. Wow. Obviously if it's rude, then <laughs> we, we like, we know our limits, mm -hmm. but we usually just socialise all of us. Patterns were set out for girls in a big way, such that at school, it was, because I went to very good school, it was accepted that, first of all, you go to university. If you didn't go to university, you went to work in a bank. If you didn't go to a bank, you worked in teaching. If you wanted to do anything else, no one knew how to deal with it, because the pattern was set for women. But in the 60s, that 65, that area, that was when women were, young girls and young people were beginning to question everything. It was a very exciting time. I think sometimes you should be careful who you tell your things to. There's some people who you tell them, oh, I want to do this. For example, when I tell people, oh, I want to work um, in the ICT industry, they're like, oh, only men work, in, um, com work with computers. I don't see a lot of women who like to take part in the industry of um, ICT. And then when you go home, you start having doubts in your head whether that course that I'm um, willing to take part in is a good course for me. But in general, you just have to mind who you tell your business to and stay focused, surround yourself with good people and it will allow you to think positive about whatever you want to do in life. My family always advised me, do what you think is best for you, do what you like, enjoy. There's no one in my family who really tells me, oh, you don't do that, it's only for like, women, or don't do that, um, you're not going to get far. They always like, they always support me. My, like, recently, my brother's telling me I wanted to become an optician. He was like... Do what you want to do. If you want to do this, then work hard to get there. Like, don't think you're not, you're not going to do it just because, like, someone said to you that only like a few percent of the people get into it, and most of the people who are like higher class than you. Is there anything stopping me? No, nothing stopping me at all. So I have to keep going. Don't stop. Stop until you get what you want. That's yeah. what I think. Mm. Yeah. Uh, whereas before, in the sixty sixty-five era, then uh, you had many people stopping you. You had your own brother stopping you, you had men in the family stopping you, wasn't suitable for a girl. You had people telling you how to dress. It was so different then, that women were expected to be in a certain way. You know, jeans hadn't really come into fashion then. To wear trousers was something big for a girl in, as a teenager in the 60s. How was the interaction between the boys and the girls like outside of school? So did you guys like ever like come together like... No, 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 not at all, not at all. In, in the working class districts those days, we were so under the rule of our fathers. You did not go and meet anybody without your father knowing. Of course people did, because there were pregnancies and all sorts of things. But in respectable families and in the fearing families, you did not. It was never expected for my sisters or myself to go out and meet boys. No, no, no. We'd have to say, Dad, I want to go on a date. And then we'd be questioned forever about this boy. Wow. It was very, very strict. Very strict. But there were people that fell by the wayside. But we, the respectable, parent-fearing ones, 
thought that those girls were meeting boys surreptitiously, bad girls anyway, they'd end up nowhere. You know, there was that very much a moral thing going on. And, and the mothers would back the fathers totally. Where do you see yourselves in 50 years? 50. Hopefully, um, I want to like be somewhere with my career, like also have a family, husband, hopefully. And just like, I don't want to live here anymore. I want to live in Qatar and probably do something over there. So, yeah. I don't want to live here either because I've seen it all. I don't want my kids to grow up and see what I've seen. So yeah. I want to live in, um, let's think deep, guys. <laughs> Canada. <laughs> Spain probably start small, small then build my build my way up. But I hopefully just want to settle down and just have a good family, so I can be able to explain how it was in two thousand and fourteen, yeah, like you're explaining yeah, yeah. to us. Yeah. yeah. When I was fifteen, I thought that I thought that at twenty one I'd commit suicide because that was such an old age. There's no point living after that, and that was so. It's kind of cram everything in, cram everything in. My parents had aspirations for me work in the bank and go and have a family like they did, like my father did, if you like. I couldn't see beyond 21 anyway, and I never had any ambition career-wise. All it was was get through your exams. That's probably what the aspiration was in the 60s. Get through your exams, and then the world's your oyster, we were told. And actually it was for a while. It was for a while. There's plenty out there for a while. So that was Gillian, Dina and Amina talking about what life was like in 1965 and how there are some similarities but a lot of differences. And um, it was actually really a heartwarming um, recording that conversation because I think a, what happened was a lot, we make a lot of assumptions about people of different generations and then when you actually talk to people... Um, you realise how much similarities there are in, in your own life. And they all came out of that conversation totally kind of, I don't know, energised because um, they'd learnt so much about each other. So, um, yeah, I, it, it was actually a really amazing experience. Yeah, even though some of the, you know, some of it, I felt that... Um, they had quite sort of negative, some negative experiences. You know, a couple of them said, "Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to be here when I'm older," and um, and sort of, you know, I wonder whether as as time goes on, they'll they'll feel differently. I read somewhere today that if you're happy and content with your life at 50, then you're likely to live a lot longer. So if you've got it sorted by then, um, you know, you, it's kind of uh, it affects your 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 quality of life and how long you live, essentially. Yeah, and I think um, through all these conversations, just talking to people generally about um, ageing and, and life expectancy and, and things like that, um, I think that's true that it's, you know, if you have a positive attitude, you know, life is going to be, mm. it's always, you're, you're going to enjoy it. And uh, yes, we all moan about everything but um <laughs> i think i think it was it, it's just been really really interesting to to listen to these um people um just talking about their, their very personal experiences and and as you'll hear later some of them get very personal which is <laughs> which is which is really interesting um so yeah i i was really happy to do these um these interviews so next um we have danielle who is 
joining us um, because she was uh, she came on our show um, last month and asked us if she could come and join in. So of course we welcome her with um, a piece that she's made. Um, so would you like to tell us a little yeah. bit about about it? Absolutely. It's interesting that you're talking about quality of life because a few weeks ago I caught up with a man who lives at one with nature. He lives in a forest in Surrey with a community of eco-warriors. And that sounds very pleasant, and it was, but sadly his home is under threat because of a piece of parchment that was signed 800 years ago. Have a listen to this. Spring, I was invited to speak to a man called Vinny at his home in Surrey. Vinny's home is pretty unique. He lives at Runnymede Eco Village, a self-sufficient commune in an area of abandoned forest that's home to around 50 others and a rather lucky house cat called Chica. He told me what it's like to live in this way and how the village came to be. Um, Running Mead's about community, it's about growth, it's about sharing experience, it's about ex being able to express yourself, it's about being able to be yourself. We walked out of Sign Lane Community Allotment, which is a squatted allotment, yeah. which they now have permission to be there, I think, for another three or four years. I think they've been there three years now. They walked out on the back of Occupy. Occupy yeah, kind yeah. of started this. And they were going for the Crown Land over at Windsor, which is over that way. And just started scouting around, and we was on one or two sites of Royal Holloway. And then by chance someone found this disused woodland. Um, totally disused, overgrown with brambles and not loved and we've been here for two and a half years. Well, we try to give everyone space. There's not many, I don't, the only tents that we have on site now are the people that are coming up to show us some support. They're all structures, be it A-frame, Hansel and Gretel type houses made of cob and clay, pallet houses, round houses, teepees. The community pride themselves on relying on the land for food and water. They have allotments and a self-plumbed spring for drinking water. Extra food is skipped from supermarket bins. They put on festivals where they invite others to share their skills and even have a mother and toddlers group. But this idyllic lifestyle is under threat, all because of a cruel twist of fate. Runnymede is situated right next to the field where the Magna Carta was signed 800 years ago this year. The treaty was significant because of its prevention of commoners becoming victims of the whims of the powerful. And Vinny sees the irony in the fact that it's the celebrations of the occasion that could be speeding up the eviction action being taken against them. The main part of the village, um, the Longhouse, the Anglo-Saxon Longhouse and community area, is just at the top of um, Runnymede. And um, as we okay. sit there, we look over historic Hankerwick Island, where the barons and 10,000 commoners stood on the meadow. You know, because um, we're facing eviction at the moment because of the... well. The Magna Carta is there. Um, we, we believe that's what's pushing forward the property developers' eviction notice. Um, so they don't want commoners on the land when you have all these dignitaries doing their, their magic. Uh, yeah, we'll have six to 7,000 people on invite only. Um, dignitaries, I believe the Queen and Obama will be here. So in my mind, the evil bunch. You see, this is our home, you know, this is a community. We have families here. So we didn't want the crazy summer, but unfortunately it looks like it's going to be yeah. a crazy summer. 
um, with us fighting the system, the, the, the unjustness. Vinnie sees it as a tragedy that people who live off the land are criminalised, but remembers a time when being more self-sufficient was the norm. Well, well, so we should be able to have land. I should be able to live my life the way that I choose to. Um, I am a responsible person within this woodland. Um, I, I, I live life to my full. Um, so by letting me live this life, I'm a productive member of our community. Um, if I'm forced to live in a mainstream society, I, I, I struggle with that, you know. My worth isn't there. Here my worth is tenfold. So the system should enable people to be able to live off the land. We should be able to bring back certain charters from the forest. I mean, there's a young man I grew up and there was all vegetable plots and cherry trees yeah. and apple, tree, apple trees. That's all been taken away now. Yeah. Yeah. Society wraps everyone up in cotton wool. Since I spoke to Vinny, the village has been successful in pushing back the hearing for the eviction, giving them more time to campaign against it. And by an almost unimaginably strange coincidence, their next court date falls on June the 15th. On June the 15th, 2015, it will be exactly 800 years ago that the famous Magna Carta was signed. Thank you, Danielle, for that. That was amazing. I don't know anything about the Magna Carta, so can you explain a little bit? Obviously, I don't expect you to be a total expert, but just for people who have no idea like me, how it works and what it is and why it it was so important. Yeah, 800 years ago, um, barons and powerful people signed a treaty to, in a very basic sense, um, protect commoners from being... Um, exploited by powerful people and so that's why it's so ironic that those at Runnymede are now being kicked out or threatened to be kicked out of their land because of the celebrations that are happening next to their their plot of land. So is there anyone who is able to protect them? Like what what do what can they do now to um, preserve this land for them to stay there? Um, well, what Vinnie was talking about was bringing back old charters which are no longer used about um, the forest being common land and so anyone being able to live there. But I'm not sure what their chances will be because they're up against kind of Queen Elizabeth, really, who's, who's going to be using the land there at the end of the week. So. And that's coming up really soon, isn't it? So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll hear more in the coming days about... But, yeah, sometimes these things can kind of, you know carry on and appeals take place and it, you know it, it can kind of be dragged out but it's not not the greatest when that's your livelihood and that's your life and yeah. it, you know you have this constant feeling of oh, what's going to happen you yeah know, it's exactly very unsettling. and it's also they're a very sort of peaceful group of people and it was very um calm and and seemed very distant from the lives that we lead, lead here in london so it's a shame that they're having to fight this battle. Because, hmm. you know, the, the, sort of the site is all quite sort of just symbolic, isn't it? It could be anywhere. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> Whereas they've actually got their homes there. So it's, it's a real tricky one. But, you know, as it was such a momentous um, charter, you know, I can see why people want to commemorate it properly. But Yeah, actually, the, um, the eco-commune are having an alternative Magna Carta celebration oh. on the same day. So if you uh, fancy going along to that it's free and they'll have musicians and all sorts of things okay so when's that happening that's the 15th of june okay so quite soon yeah quite soon
Well, um, and you're listening to East Coast Show in case you were uh, out and just tune in now. This is Resonance 104.4 FM. And now let's welcome Alex Willis, who's the voice behind Our Man in the Field. Welcome. Hello. How are we doing? Very well. <laughs> and also in the studio with us is Rami, uh, Rami Riley. Hello, Rami. Hello. <laughs> um, so um, your EP is going to be out quite soon. Yeah, it is next week on the 17th. We'll launch at Brixton East. So can you talk about uh, how was the process behind putting it all together and how it's different behind, uh, uh, actually how it is different from your previous EP? From the previous one, okay, well, um, this is a much bigger uh, EP, uh, not just because there's six songs and there's four on the other one, um, but we, um, Rami and I, we actually met uh, playing football a long time ago, and uh, we, Rami runs the Lay Bear Nights in Brixton, gave him our first uh, gig and uh, we worked together on a couple of tracks and it, it, it came out really well and we, we decided that we'd um, put together the first EP and um, it was really successful. We, we got some really good radio play and interest in it. So we immediately started work on the second one and we knew from the experience, I mean, it's my first experience of recording, obviously Rami's more experienced than I am, so um, for me it was a learning process but... Um, we almost didn't stop, did we? We sort of carried on recording from the first to the... It almost feels like, you know, we just... And we planned to make... Uh, to go straight into recording another one. So, we, you know, we're really pleased with what we've got so far. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we really yeah, really hope, hope that it's going to have as good a response as the first one did. Wonderful. I did uh, watch you perform a few times already. So. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, in East London, in Brixton... Um, your your lyrics are very observational. You talk mm. about people you see, about things you experience, but it's also very intense. I I think that when when the audience is listening to, they're really uh, kind of they are really into the music, oh, which is, is really good. Well, from from the outside point of view, that's what I, I see that happening. Well, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I I mean everything that I write and mean it when I sing it. It's interesting. Um, uh, your uh, previous um, talk Pete? about the yeah. Magna Carta. One of the songs we're going to play for you is called "I Like You So I'll Kill You Last." Now, the the lyric "I Like You So I'll Kill You Last" originally came from what I thought was a really trendy film, a uh, really good film, not just trendy. It's good by um, Andrea Arnold called "Fish Tank," and a little girl says it to Michael Fassbender, and I thought it's a really cool lyric. I've got to fit it into a song, and uh, I did this song, "I Like You So I'll Kill You Last," um, but actually. Someone has told me since uh, at a gig that it, it wasn't actually originally in Fish Tank. It was a quote of a quote, and the original film was Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So <laughs> not quite as uh, arty as I thought it was. But what, what the roundabout way of saying th- that song is actually about um, it, it talks about people who've created something in a place, and then but they didn't own the land, so uh, they didn't own. Uh, or who, you know, who does own the land, who does own anything, and uh, it's just something that's taken away from them and uh, how that makes you feel. And it doesn't have to necessarily be an objective thing. It could be an idea or something that you've created artistically uh, that somebody else takes ownership or somebody else stops you from being able to express the way you want to. But but it kind of has resonance with um, exactly what you were saying there in, in that literally uh, in my area in Peckham where I live, not where I'm from, you can tell I haven't got a, a Peckham accent, but where I'm from, <laughs> where I live in London, sorry, um, it, it's happening at um, Peckham Station 
there's a plan to redevelop that area and there's a local um, movement to, to oppose that. There's a big gig in Brixton recently um, to oppose the, the sort of gentrification in inverted commas. I don't necessarily have a, um, an opinion on all of that, but I do feel strongly for people who've created something and uh, then have it taken away from them. So can we maybe expect a track about that soon, maybe? Or for upcoming... Uh, EP maybe uh, that that one. Well, we won't. That, I'll let you so I'll kill you last. I'll play that for you in a minute if you like. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's on the EP as well. But, yeah. <laughs> I actually meant uh, gentrification all that. Oh, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. okay, yeah you know. <laughs> How long have we got? Like, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, that I think that we would love to listen to it right now. Okay. Well, let's we, do it. We can give it to you. Yeah. All right. Okay. I don't own this piece of land, but I'll make a stand. Every last thing that's here, I build with these two hands. But if you're planning on running me out of town, say your prayers if you think that's going down. My cool hand on my burning heart Sweating on my sleep with the excitement to start And it's a fool's errand And I'll give you no hope You're gonna do for yourself I'll give you To my limits, and now I'm overdue. There's consequence to cool, and they're all the cool to you. Fine line, it was out of you cross. Count up what you've won, take away what you've lost. My cool. Section I choose. Why should I be scared of you when I've nothing left to lose? And every word you've spoken, every sound you breathe, only serves to color the shape of your grief. Excitement to start 
back into your inspiration um, what what do, really drives you to to write mm, what drives you to write um, well I've written songs about books that I like um, I've got a song called Le Tranger by um, about the book that um, by Albert Camus I've got um, a song called Mice of Men which is there is also a book of a similar name um, but um, it's mainly people really like the, the, the book's are uh, actually really uh, about the character. The songs are about the characters in the books, and a lot of the songs that I write are about people that I know and people um, that I've known, and things that really um, even the songs. I, we've got a song uh, called "Something Has Got to Be Done," which is uh, it's about a frustrated war correspondent, and I actually wrote it just before Jon Snow went to Gaza last year and did his uh, YouTube. Uh, video afterwards because he was so affected by it. And it was exactly what um, I was imagining what it must be like for uh, war correspondents to have to sort of sit there and um, interview people and uh, with a straight face and you know they they have to be in these terrible places and give it to us without colouring it at all and uh, then shortly after I wrote that song Jon Snow snapped and said no I'm not going to just sit here and say nothing I'm going to say what I think and that hopefully that's what people get from my songs is that I'm not going to just sort of like think these things I have to you know I can get them out and hopefully if the tune's alright as well people will remember it that's amazing um, and uh, are there musicians they really found yeah there's, there's, there's loads I mean um, uh, and all the time new ones that I hear I really like but I mean the stuff that I, I listen to a lot and I guess the stuff that probably influences the music most is things like Credence Clearwater um, uh, Neil Young um, even like I guess everybody says it, but Bob Dylan is a is a big influence. But then more modern people like Fionn Regan, I think, is amazing. I've seen him live a lot, and he everything he does, you can tell that he really means it. You know, he gets he gets a song, and it might have really simple lyrics, but the way he delivers it is is really great to watch. And it's not just a song. Um, yeah, there's 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 so many. I could probably go on forever about that. I'm a bit curious. Um, you're obviously quite a reader, so do do you write? As well as writing songs, do you do you write anything else? Yeah, I, I do, um, but I haven't uh, I have I haven't ever um, put one of my ideas uh, for. Uh, I'm an actor as well, so I I've just finished a play called Bolt, which was on the Brighton Festival, and one of the songs off the EP was used in the play. It's got a song called Oh No, which um, I actually wrote while I was walking around the Tate Modern, and everybody was. Like there was all this amazing art, but it didn't look like everybody was looking at it. They were just like going up the mad escalators, like in some sort of like factory, and uh, the art that was there was like just getting passed by. And actually, this, the the song is really about um, uh, feeling like 
something else is taking something else is taking over, something else is controlling you, and the play was about um, toxic love and substance abuse and that sort of thing taking over um, what you do. So there, there was, although it wasn't written necessarily about the same thing, it had it had a good resonance in the play. So um, that was really cool. And that play is coming to London, I think, as well. So well, it's called Bolt. Yeah. Keep us updated when when that happens. We'd love to to see it. Um, very quickly before um, we move on, can you just give us some dates? So if yeah, anyone, sure. Yeah. Um, well, uh, this week I'm playing at the Bedroom Bar tomorrow night, um, supporting a guy from New Zealand called Benny Tapenny, and uh, it's going to be brilliant. And then next week is the big one. It's our EP launch at Brixton East. It's Rami's big night laid bare. There's seven acts on two floors, of which uh, I'm one and. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. There'll be, uh, I mean, I've played there three times for Rami, and it's always been amazing. And the standard of the acts that he gets are, are brilliant. Um, no one's ever heard of me, but the people that he gets are, are a real big deal. So it's it's nice to play on on those sort of stages. And festivals? Festivals. We're playing uh, Blissfields uh, on the fourth of July. We're playing a few local festivals, but that's the big one. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited about that because I've never I've never played a festival before, so it's going to be uh, it's going to be good. Thank you so much. So that was our man in the field. And if we have time, we will play a last track at the end of the show. But um, let's move on to something completely different. Um, so we're going to hear um, the third and final conversation from our series of Remembering 65 recordings. So Rini was in her 40s in 1965 and has lived in Hoxton all her life. She was actually born there as well. And she talks to Kristen, um, a local resident who's in her 40s now, about her experiences of sexuality in the 60s. Hello, I'm Irene Samain. I was born at the 75 Herbert Street, 7th July 1924. I've lived in Hoxton all my life. And um, I still, well, I still live there and I like it in the area. My name is Kristen. I'm originally from Boston in the United States and moved to England in 1996. And I've been living in Hackney since 2006, I think it is. When I was in my 40s, uh, actually, it wasn't a lot different to what it is now, to be honest with you. To me, everything stayed the same after the war. I mean, I was married then. Uh, I had a good life. Um, I, we still worked. Unfortunately, I didn't have any children, but I didn't. it was something that was not possible for me. That's the only thing I regret. Um, but we still we, we enjoyed ourselves. I mean, we was always going into the pub of an evening or weekends, going to the cinema. Uh, fortunately for me, my husband liked dancing, so we used to go ballroom dancing. We we had a good life, the way I look at it. In my head, you have images of the fashion in Camden and all of these changes, and with music and everything. But would Hackney have had that same kind of extreme? Um, you know, the mini skirts and everything, or was it more traditional? No. No, it was, uh, much, it was much more low, low, low down. As we, we would say it was a low down. That means it wasn't like it is in the 60s. Not now, because people more, are more open in their ways now. We weren't. We was very, I suppose, subdued. You didn't talk about things that you talk about now mm-hmm. and in then days. 
So it wasn't like this definitely not sexual revolution going no, on in Hackney. No, no. And if it was, it was no. Under uh, well, it was it was behind the cupboard if it was. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, it wasn't even talked about. Okay. See, uh, I'm a great believer that if you don't know, you don't try. I know it sounds, may sound silly to you, but when we was at school, we was never, ever told anything about sex. Never. Whereas my girls are eight and nine, and there's a van that comes to the school, you know, yearly to kind of go through... And I don't think sex, it's wrong. Sex, drugs, alcohol... No, and drugs and alcohol, yes. But where sex is concerned, I don't think it's right. That's my opinion. Because when we was at school, nothing was talked about like that, nothing. Mm-hmm. To me, the children of today are more promiscuous than we were. And I'll, I'll put it down to them knowing about sex. They've got, I think, in their minds, they think, oh, well, they talk about it, let's try it out. I don't think even then, in the 60s, I don't think they was like that as they are now. Mm -hmm. I don't remember anybody being uh, so, as I call it, sex mad, or uh, people who still go dancing, but once you left the dance hall, you went home with your friends. It wasn't, I can't can't really explain it, it wasn't, um, I feel sorry for the younger generation today, they've got so much pressure on them about all this, and I still say they shouldn't teach it in school. We, we grew up ignorant to the facts of life, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I know it sounds a bit stupid now, but we was ignorant to the facts of life. So can I ask you something quite personal? Yeah, when, of course when, you can. When you got married... What was it like, you know, because you didn't really know what went on in the bedroom, I guess. No, no. So, wasn't it a bit scary? It was. Yeah, definitely. But see, uh, what can I say about my husband? Um, it was a very respectful man. Not like the boys today. They've got no respect for girls, in my opinion, some of them. And uh, I know it was a bit awkward, and he said to me... I really won't hurt you. And he just sort of talked to me and that. And it was lovely, you know, and I got over it. But that was the way we were. And, it, you know, I, I thought to myself, oh, well. But then, of course, then someone said to me, well, don't keep on having sex because you'll have a baby. Unfortunately, I wanted to because I, then I couldn't have one when I was uh, examined. It wasn't him, it was me. Mm. But no, um, I can't explain it. It was, um, it was a sort of a nice, nice moment. It wasn't, oh, I don't like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. No, uh, because he was, he was a very respectful person, he was. And he sounds like a lovely man. Nice. He was, yeah. That's really uh, nice. That, and he had respect for everything sort of thing. Because... Uh, I can always remember my dad. He used to say to my, my twin sister and myself, always be respectful. And he had a saying, 
No one's better than you, and you're no better than anybody else. So that was Irene talking to Kristen about her life in 1965. And she was already in her 40s in 65, but um, you can hear the whole conversation where she talks about how he, how she met her husband and the whole courtship period and um, and her, her life with him because she spent her whole life with him. Unfortunately, he passed, he's passed away. But, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very touching story. Yeah, very touching and, you know, quite, quite moving how she talks about him and... And, you know, quite brave as well to talk about intimate things, you know, intimate moments like that. Yeah, she was very open and candid about um, her sexuality, which I think, you know, it's we, we kind of forget that older people did have a sexuality yeah, exactly. at some point. And, you know, it's interesting for them to be able to open up about that. So if you want to hear all of these conversations in full, um, the recordings uh, are on um, a website called, which is remembering65.uk, and, that, and there you can hear the whole of the Remembering 65 project. So there are the recordings that you heard on the show and some extra ones as well. Surely there will be plenty of like good stuff just like this. It's, it's amazing, Paul. Um, well... It was amazing, but we have to say goodbye now. <laughs> um, we will leave you with another track from our man in the field. It's from his previous self-titled titled EP, L'Etranger. But um, I think that uh, just before we go, we we just have to tell you, there have been East Coast. We had a pleasure being here on Resonance 104.4 FM. And you can find more about our East London discoveries at eastcastshow.com. And thanks for listening. Something